and welcome to Letter to the Americans. I think we're, this is going to be week... Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Eight? Yeah, I think this is going to be week eight. Or maybe it's week nine. Anyway, we're coming up on the end here. And uh, this week's reading comes from uh, Reading Romans in Pompeii, Paul's letter at ground level. Um, and so I'll kind of skip around the sections. He, he kind of goes through all of Romans 12 and just kind of lays it, uh, lays it out in kind of what the first century folks would have heard or picked up on. And so I don't know, we're not going to read the whole thing, but I just wanted to highlight a few of the sections here. Romans 12 for a model craft worker house church. Romans 12, 1 and 2 a communal living sacrifice. So I urge you, brothers and sisters, because of God's mercies, offer your bodies as a living, holy sacrifice, pleasing to God, your form of worship that makes sense. And don't go along with the pattern of this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This will mean you are able to discern what God's will is, what is good and pleasing and perfect. Paul turns from explaining God's salvation in Romans 1-11 through to calling the hearers to action in view of God's mercy. It is not immediately clear what these actions mean in practice, but as we shall see, there is plenty in chapter 12 that would involve both sacrifice and nonconformity for members of a craft worker house church. The communal bodily sacrifice is their rational worship. 12 verse 1. If some of the male members of the house church were previously or still members of a trade or other association, they would be used to communal meals beginning with a token sacrifice to a patron deity. All of the house church members will have experienced both the token sacrifices of domestic cults and the large-scale sacrifices paid for on behalf of the city by wealthy patrons sponsoring festivals and games. Some in the house church will individually, or as a family, have offered what to them were quite substantial sacrifices to particular goddesses or gods on special occasions such as childbirth. The religion of a house church is to involve a total, ongoing communal sacrifice by everyone. This new religious practice is of a different order from the token sacrifices of association meals or the domestic cult. Unlike the civic cults, the house church sacrifice is provided by everyone. Unlike the sacrifices on special occasions, Paul calls for a living and hence continuing action. In contrast to individual sacrifice, the sacrifice here is a unified act. Sacrifice is singular, performed collectively. Your bodies, plural. It is an act in which all types of people in the house church can take part because the sacrifice is not of the body of an ox, affordable only by the wealthy, but of their own bodies. Even for the slaves, whose bodies belonged to other people, their body was still the physical realm over which they could exercise the most control. They might own no goods at all, but they could still take some actions. Romans 12.3 A New Scale of Value For, through the gift that I have been given, I say to each one among you that you shouldn't think more highly of yourself than you ought, Instead, you should assess soberly, as God has distributed to each an amount of faith. Paul cites his gift and calling, then urges each one among you not to overestimate his or her worth, but to assess people using the measure of the amount of faith given to them by God. Unrealistic boasting and inflated opinions of oneself were condemned and mocked by ancient writers. However, Paul is not calling for realistic assessment of oneself on the usual scales of status and intellect. He does away with these scales of achievement and inherited qualities by putting in a scale based on unmerited gift. 
This has profound implications for the craft workers, which will be reinforced in the coming verses. The first effect is to undermine the honor system. In Greco-Roman elite, excuse me, Greco-Roman elite males competed vigorously for honor. In particular, civic offices were held for the sake of honor that the offices gave. Honorific inscriptions are among the most common epigraphic finds from the period. Some inscriptions show that a limited number of elite women seem also to have sought honor, especially by means of benefaction. Competition for honor extended to the non-elite. In craft associations, the titles of officeholders often replicated those of the city. It seems clear that such officers were also sought, excuse me, offices were also sought for the sake of the honor they gave. In the apartment building of the Menander, we have already encountered the graffiti exchange between Severus and Successus, fitting a challenge and riposte pattern in which concerns of honor and dishonor are central. Paul's call to change the way in which one assesses oneself and others undercuts the urge to compete for honor. No one can seek office in the house church for the sake of honor. It, of the honor it might give. There is no basis for seeing someone oneself as superior when the only measure is faith, a gift from God. As well as undermining competition for honor, this change of attitude undermines the status system. The 30 people in the model house church stood in a status order that would be broadly agreed by them and by society as a whole. There were subtleties and scope for limited differences of opinion, but there was a fairly clear scale running down from the wealthiest freeborn male householder, unless someone else in the house church was particularly well-born, to the lowest level slave. Freeborn was above freed, which was above slave. Male was above female. Adult was above child. Wealthy was above poor. Wealth could cut across some other factors. If the church included a relatively well-off widow householder, she would probably have had higher status than poor male householders. Her status would also be affected by the number of children she had raised. Paul's call does away with the relevance of all of this in assessing one's position. All is faith. Gift. Romans 12, 9-10 Family love beyond family boundaries. Love is without pretense. People hating what is evil, clinging to what is good, loving each other with brotherly love. The implied call for love that is unhypocritical or without play-acting, as one might rather literally translate 12.9, reinforces the points above. Love that is unhypocritical is presumably marked by practical action on behalf of those loved instead of mere platitudes. It is presumably also a force against maintaining hierarchies of status and competition for honor in the Christian community. Love without play-acting would have been rather tricky to manage in most pre-modern societies and is difficult enough now. Even among the non-elite, life was structured by formal relationships in which the participants were expected to act and react primarily in accordance with their social role rather than with individual spontaneity. Where we might expect relationships to be characterized by affection, particularly between spouses and between parents and children, behavior was often rather formally ritualized. Love, without play-acting, although not a direct attack on the ritualized relationships of the first century, does, in principle, engender a new way of interacting that would produce a range of major changes for all of the types of people in our model house church. This is sharpened further by the call to love each other with brotherly love in 1210. This challenges family boundaries. The household was the basic social and economic unit. It is more difficult to generalize about what kind of unit the family was. Levels of affection varied. Levels of allegiance also varied, as is most clearly seen in the practice of exposure of some babies. At its minimum, the family was the unit to which the honor of the paterfamilias, the head of the family, was most closely tied. However, there clearly were also generally degrees of affection and allegiance in relationships between spouses, parents, and children, and siblings. These were combined with the obligations of pietas, which involved respect for parents and ancestors. 
In any case, the ties among the relatives in a household, or beyond the household to siblings, differed from the relationships with other household members such as slaves. In advocating brotherly love, Paul undermines the boundaries of kin relationships, just as he has earlier undermined the boundaries of the household. As many scholars have noted, Paul creates a fictive kin relationship among the Christians. One particularly difficult area for house churches to work this out, in practical terms, was presumably in how owners should relate to slaves. Different, but equally acute, difficulties would be raised by the incorporation of those, such as homeless people, with whom no one in the house church would normally have had any connection, let alone one that could be described in family terms. The practical implication of such new connections could presumably be far-reaching and potentially problematic for literal families who were being encouraged to expand their effective kin network in this way. Turning this point around, homeless and other detached people would no doubt be delighted at incorporation into something that functioned as if it were a kin group. This would be particularly striking for migrant workers, who would often be acutely aware of the detachment from family that was involved in them coming to Rome to look for work. In fact, for migrant workers, and more generally for immigrant groups, it is common for fictive or marginally real kin networks to be an important social and economic resource. I think of stories of successive groups of Jews arriving in the Strangeways area of Manchester, fleeing from pogroms in Russia. They talk of extended hospitality given because people were very distant cousins or because they were effectively regarded as cousins though having come from the same region, through having come from the same region. However, this example indicates a key feature of such groups, their underlying ethnic basis. Although it would be reasonable to expect that some house churches in Rome may have developed among particular ethnic groups, this seems unlikely to have been an overall pattern. It is clear that if the house churches in Rome were founded by Jews, they very rapidly stopped being exclusively ethnically Jewish. Such early multi-ethnicity pro probably set a continuing pattern. For half a dozen members of our model house church, a fictive kin relationship presents a particularly difficult issue. These are members of families or households whose head is not part of the church. It is one thing for Christian householders to extend the effective boundary of their family to encompass other people in the house church. It is a different matter for a non-Christian householder to discover that some of their family, slaves or other dependents, have been incorporated into such a group. The non-Christian householder would probably see this as the action of the householder who was the house church host. The non-Christian householder could well see this as an attempt by the Christian householder to steal some of the allegiance of household members. This could easily become a source of trouble. More generally, the implications of the essentially egalitarian brotherly love must have been difficult to work out across various boundaries, such as those of gender and servitude. More subtly, Philadelphia, which is the Greek word for brotherly love, is not a common word, except in references to the towns of that name, so it is difficult to be sure of its connotations when used in an extended sense, as Paul does here, in relating it to Christian groups rather than to actual families. The term brother is used of members of associations. It could be that Paul's usage of Philadelphia could evoke ideas of loyalty within an association. If the term did evoke such a usually all-male, convivial setting, this could do subtle things to the sense of identity of women and others who would not usually see themselves in that situation. Conversely, the nature of Philadelphia would be changed by the inclusion of such groups. This kind of point is actually raised by each of the more egalitarian elements of this chapter. They sound like ideals rooted in Greek elite male groups, among whom certain ideas of friendship arose. For Paul to ascribe such ideas and practices to the types of people in our model house church is potentially complex and far-reaching. Romans 12.10b, Mutual Honoring in a Hierarchical World Outdoing Each Other in Giving Honor Paul's implicit call to outdo each other in giving honor presumably refers to giving honor to each other. 
To us, this may seem relatively insignificant. Honoring each other tends not to be a major issue for us, maybe a matter of taking care to hold the door open for each other. Actually, this is quite a good practical example of part of the difference between now and the first century. If, at church, I hold a door open for someone, it is not revolutionary, whoever it may be. In a first century house church, if a slave held a door open for their master, no one would notice. If a master held a door open for a slave, this would be very radical. However, the matter goes much further than this. As we have already seen, honor was a crucial issue for first century life. The giving and receiving of honor, and competition for it, was a central driver for many kinds of action. A slave did not, in principle, have any honor. For women, children, and freed slaves, honor was an ambiguous category. Honor focused mainly on freeborn male heads of households. In our model house church, this means just a few people out of a total of 30. Paul's call implies giving each other, or giving each person, honor individually, rather than all honor just being rolled up into the householder's honor. It implies the slave owners giving honor to their slaves. In first century terms, this is outrageous. It is very difficult to see how it could have been put into effect. Even if we were to entertain the implausible assumption that none of these house churches included slaves, we would still be left with honor being given in all sorts of abnormal directions. All this is in the context of the fatherhood of God. The honor of all the church members is essentially focused in God through Christ. As Romans 8 has made clear, all Christians are God's children. As such, they have a derivative share in God's honor. All Christians include slaves, so they share in this honor in the same way and to the same extent as freeborn Christians. The basis of honor in the house churches has no connection with human status. In Christ, the honor distinctions of ethnicity, servitude, and gender are defunct. The potential social implications of all Christians being children of God are extremely wide. In view of that, honor is probably a relatively manageable issue for Paul to pick up on. The same can be said of the mutual love and allocation of house church ministries that are main strands in the chapter so far. Even though it is hard to imagine how our model house church would work out these work these out in practice, it is far easier than if Paul had called for action on the really hard-edged issues. Free your slaves, redistribute your wealth. The Jerusalem church in Acts followed such a radical road, although Luke does not then trace such radicalism on into the subsequent churches. The utopianism of New Testament eschatology is surely this radical. The New Jerusalem must be a free, equal society. The celebratory procession in the air in 1 Thessalonians 4 must also be a free, equal people. But Romans 12, although radical to an extent, is not fully so. It does, not call for, it does call for not conforming to this age. Its call for a renewed mind is to lead to new practices. However, it does not call for radical changes to social structures that would be unambiguously visible to outsiders. Outsiders might see that the stone workers appeared better fed than one would have expected, given their likely income. Outsiders, especially those with access to Christian-led households, might see more respect shown towards slaves. However, the householders would still be householders, with much the same status in society as before. The slaves would still be slaves. The house church meetings, including their meals, might operate in ways that would scandalize observers who happen to see them. The meetings might be such as to appear to outsiders to be transgressive in the way that Saturnalia celebrations were ritually transgressive, when slaves gave the temporary illusion of being free. However, in contrast to the annual Saturnalia, house church meetings were sufficiently regular that they constituted a significant part of life. A slave who was treated as if a free person for one or more periods every week was actually living a different life from that of a normal slave. If this was coupled with being treated with some respect during the rest of the week, this was a markedly different life, albeit without the really radical step, freedom. Freedom. 
Romans 12.12, Hope, Endurance, and Prayer. Rejoicing in hope, enduring through suffering, devoting themselves to prayer. Verse 12 offers the further resources of hope and prayer, but also draws attention to suffering. Hope, suffering, and prayer actually form a closely linked group in the extensive rhetoric of chapter 8. The key drive in that chapter towards endurance under suffering is fueled by hope and sustained by prayer. Romans 8, 25, and 26 captures the coordination. But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with endurance. In the same way also the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit itself intercedes with wordless groans. The suffering in Romans 12, 12 may or may not be for the sake of Christ. I have argued elsewhere on Philippians that long-term suffering for one's faith tends to have a strong economic component. In the relatively impoverished context of a craft worker house church in Rome, economic issues are likely to be important in relation to suffering, whether or not the suffering is because of their faith. For instance, one form of suffering that could strike anyone in the house church is illness. Looking at the model house church, we might expect about a dozen of the 30 to have been in families that could pay for occasional, reasonably competent medical help. However, the general standard of medical practice was such that this may not have made a dramatic difference to the chances of dying from the illness. Physicians available in a poor area, such as Trans-Tiberium, are likely to have been particularly scarce and poorly trained. A possible bonus for our specific model house church is that Holconius, who is the author's uh, sort of theoretical homeowner who hosts the house church, a possible bonus for our specific model house church is that Holconius probably did part-time surgery alongside his cabinet making. Whether this was actually to people's advantage is another question. As well as the frequent danger of death, especially for children, the elderly, and women during and shortly after childbirth, illness had immediate and possibly long-term economic effects. Time for work was lost and disabilities might result. This would be a particular threat for slaves who would fear being thrown out of the household because of becoming too unproductive to be worth feeding. All the, above points, all the above points apply also to the possible consequences of injuries, whether sustained by accident, by attack, whether because of their faith or the general dangers of the dark streets and apartment blocks, or by violent punishment. This last possibility was, of course, particularly likely to happen to slaves. For the craft-working households and the house churches, there were also various possible direct economic forms of suffering. Boycotts by customers or suppliers, or charging of excessive prices, damage to stock or premises, denial of access to shared resources such as warehousing. There could also simply be poverty due to adverse market conditions. For house church members from households headed by a non-Christian, there were possibilities of serious suffering if relations with the household head broke down. Children might be dis disinherited, wives might be divorced, freed slaves might lose vital pa patronage, actual slaves might be violently punished, fined out of their peculium, the money they were customarily allowed to hold even though it technically belonged to their owner, or sold into a worse situation. All in all, for various groups in our model house church, suffering would frequently have a major economic component. Endurance is a slightly curious concept. For most first century people, in most forms of suffering, they had little choice of action. They became ill. They either recovered or died. Surviving the illness was not generally a matter of effort. The same could be said of poverty or experiencing violence. If the suffering was because of their faith, endurance presumably meant sticking with Christ and with the house church, despite whatever pressures were being brought to bear. Sometimes the burden of this must have fallen on Christian members other than those directly attacked. If one member lost their source of food, presumably others would tend to help. This could easily reach the point where some of the Christian households were under economic strain. 
Then, the endurance that would be needed would be to keep on giving support to fellow Christians rather than backing out of the house church or holding its poor members at arm's length. This last scenario would also apply if the suffering was not a result of being a Christian. Viewing the house church as a group, the group's endurance under suffering would lie particularly in being willing to absorb the range of shocks caused by the suffering that various of the members would undergo. There would always be a temptation for the group to split at that point, setting adrift those who were suffering. Romans 12.13, Giving and Hospitality Sharing in the needs of the Holy Ones, Pursuing Hospitality The sharing that Paul writes of here could be within the house church. He calls all the Christians in Rome Holy Ones in 1.7. In that case, the instruction would express the necessary economic consequences of mutual love, as we have been discussing above. Hospitality could also be a key issue within the house church. Taking one of the scenarios discussed above... The child or wife of a non-Christian might get thrown out of the family home by a non-Christian householder. In such a case, hospitality would mean the giving of shelter, quite possibly long-term. Such hospitality was likely to be an acute, to be an acute economic burden on any household of the sizes we are envisaging in the house in the model house church. Paul may well, however, be thinking further afield. In chapter 15, he uses the term "holy ones" to refer to the Christians in Jerusalem, in the context of the bringing there of the rec of the collection of money from the Gentile churches of Asia Minor and Greece. His phraseology in 1526, the holy ones who were in Jerusalem, implies that he could also use the term of Christians in general, as one would expect from 1.7. In 1213, it is particularly noticeable that he switches to this term from the language of mutuality he has used earlier and will soon return to, instead of sharing in the needs of each other, as one might expect from love each other and be of one mind with each other, we read sharing in the needs of the holy ones. This is a substantial fresh challenge to the craft worker house church. Not only must they sustain the economically marginal mix of people within the group, they are also called to provide money for house churches elsewhere. In places where Paul talks about how to gather money for the Jerusalem collection, he asks for members of churches to put aside regularly amounts that they can afford. However, the economic pressures of craft working existence among the apartment blocks of Transtiberium would tend to make any donation very difficult. Similarly, Hospitality could refer to the well-known issue of giving hospitality to traveling missionaries and other visiting Christians. This could be something that was rather harder in Rome than in the more spacious setting of smaller towns. Paul stayed with Prisca and Aquila at Corinth. If, in Corinth, they had a house like that of the cabinet maker in Pompeii, we can easily imagine them finding room for him. However, if Holconius moves to Rome, he not only loses half his space, but has to give over a higher proportion of his space to craft work. Finding space for Paul in the limited accommodation could be difficult. More broadly, the issues about the costs of providing for people who apply also apply for guests from beyond Rome. In fact, the costs would probably be greater because of expectations about the type of hospitality that would be provided for particularly honored guests. Both the giving and the hospitality raise issues about which types of people Paul is addressing. The only ones who could offer hospitality would be the families whose householders belong to the church. In terms of adults, this means Paul addressing only about eight people. In fact, given the very constrained space of the householders poorer than Holconius, one suspects that the instruction effectively addresses only him. However, in a broader sense, more people in the house church could be involved in hospitality. Even though the guest might be bound to stay in Holconius's apartment, maybe relegating his children to the workshop mezzanine space, others in the group could contribute work or food. Sharing in the needs of the Holy Ones could probably to some extent be done by everyone, even if some contributions were very small. However, there would be different constraints on various types of people. 
the householders would have clearest access to money. However, their money was what sustained the household and its craft-working enterprise. Any giving away of household money would clash with the householder's responsibility to those dependent on him, or possibly her. It would also make him poorer. This would threaten to destabilize his status, causing difficulties for his position and networks of people on whom he was dependent, such as a patron, or who were dependent on him. Family members of Christian or non-Christian householders would not legally have independent possession of money, even if they were adults. However, by custom, they could control some money. The amounts would tend to be much more limited than the householder's own money. However, family members might actually feel more freedom to dispose of money that they did have. It would not feel like part of the main household fund. Slaves were in a similar but worse position. Their peculium, gained mainly from tips, would often have been very limited. They would also be quite likely to be urgently saving their peculium to buy their freedom. Freed slaves would have money of their own and liberty to give it away. However, the sums involved at the craft, craft worker level of society would generally be small and would generally be very difficult to spare. Migrant workers would also have money and the freedom to use it. Their constraint would be similar to that of householders because migrants would tend to be gathering money to support relatives in the place that they came from. The homeless would be constrained by their absolute poverty. A complicating factor that could affect any of these with legal control over money was debt. The net economic worth of some in the house church could easily be negative. Romans 12:14, Bless rather than curse your persecutors. And bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse. For most of us, cursing is a matter of rudeness, effectively a form of insult. In the first century world, it was seen as a concretely effectual form of interaction. One of the most common types of textual find from antiquity is defixiones, curse tablets. In a recent episode of the British popular archaeological TV program Time Team, two of these small lead items were found in the remains of a Roman British temple near St. Albans. Cursing your persecutor would be viewed as a way to take actual revenge or to get rid of the persecutor and the persecution. One major temptation among members of the early Christian movement, convinced that they had access to the God of the universe, must surely have been to seek to use his power to curse their enemies. In fact, we do know examples of people using Christian terminology in such a way. A 4th century example runs as follows. Holy God, Gabriel, Michael, do what is sufficient for me, Mesa. Lord God, strike Philadelphia and her children. Lord, 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 God, 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 strike along with her, her son, her something, Uso. <laughs> I guess that's somebody else's name. Christ, have mercy upon me and hear me, Lord. Such cursing extended throughout society. Anyone in our model house church could have engaged in it. Paul urges that, instead, Christians should bless their persecutors. Again, we should probably think of that in quite concrete terms. If Christians prayed for good to come on their enemies, they probably expected this to be effective. For Christians to do this was probably felt to be something of a sacrifice. This is especially so if we follow scholars such as Bruce Malina, who argue that this was a limited good society. In that case, if good things were transferred to your enemy as a result of your prayers, other people, such as you, would be losing out. The call to bless one's persecutors would be particularly problematic for those who had suffered heavily or repeatedly at their hands. If the persecution was because of their Christian faith, such a situation might involve a family who had suffered economic ruin as a result of how someone on whom they depended economically had reacted to their conversion. If the term persecutor is more general, one would think particularly of the suffering, sexual or more generally physical or mental, that owners frequently cause their slaves. 
In some such situations, an unconditional call to bless the persecutor could be deeply problematic in a number of ways. 